Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Notable. Hello, welcome to Notable with me, Elizabeth Holker. And me, Stu McConey. Notable is the podcast where we bring you curious and interesting tales from the world of music that aren't really just about music, are they? No, they're more about the kind of wider social, political context, backdrop, what was happening. Backdrop is a good word. Yeah. Context, backdrop. But we hope it's fun and entertaining as well. Today, we're sitting in producer Jeff's kitchen in Macclesfield. In his incredible house. Yep, absolutely. Nice rumble of traffic. Which deserves a podcast all of its own. (laughs) But today, we're going to be talking about two quite different subjects. Batley Varieties Club. Yeah, and the first ever electronic mass, Catholic mass. Yeah. So today, Las Vegas near Leeds, Batley Varieties Club. Incredible story. Yes. Do you know Batley at all? I do know Batley. I was a student in Leeds, so we used to have trips out there sometimes. It's not, um, well, it's not the most remarkable, I don't want to offend no. anybody from Batley, no. I'm from Rochdale, but you know, it's, no, I think it's not the enough. most remarkable place. And It's a remarkable place to have had probably the nearest thing Britain had to a Las Vegas That's style true. entertainment culture in the yeah. 1970s. Um, Batley, it's a town in the West Riding of Yorkshire, it's a wool town, money based on wool. I think particularly about making a thing called shoddy which is a way of turning cheap old clothes into wool. But I think that's where they made, that's where they made the money, full of mills, set in lovely hillsides, stuff like that. But in the 1960s and 70s, its name became synonymous with kind of top-of-the-range entertainment in a kind of what became parodied as the sort of chicken-in-a-basket sort of um, circuit. Some of the biggest names in entertainment came to this little town, Batley in the West Riding, because of a club called Batley Varieties, and the story of it is quite extraordinary. It started in Las Vegas, didn't it? Sort of, yeah. It's the brainchild, it was the brainchild, of a guy called James Corrigan, who was a... Basically came from a fairground family. He didn't go to school, did he? He never was never schooled. They were an itinerant. Very well spoken though, isn't he? Absolutely. If you watch footage of him on interviews, yeah. But he came turned out very nice, as my grandma would say. For sure, yeah. But came from a long line of fairground hawkers and those kind of people who put furs on and so they would come to your town. But he nurtured this dream of making a Las Vegas style entertainment centre. In Yorkshire, yeah. And And he did it. And he did it. And of course so he, he got together some money, he found some backers. And as you say, he went to Las Vegas to research yeah. it, didn't he? With his wife. With his wife, Betty, yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny you should say that thing about chicken in a basket, because right. when you see the footage of, of the club, it has that kind of Las Vegas feel to it, in a sense, doesn't it? Oh, it does. But you see the waitresses, and they're carrying around trays full of pints of mild and... Dimple uh, glasses full of mild chips. and scampi yeah. and chips, yeah. <laughs> not cocktails. No, not cocktails. Dimple glasses full of mild and scampi, mild and scampi yeah. and chips, which makes but, it all more attractive, I think. Yeah yeah, 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 there's a weird kind of incongruous sort of nature to it. There'd been a working men's club scene, obviously, for years before that. You I mean, I grew up with, with working men's clubs. You'd go down the bottom of the road, and there'd be a tiny little club, and there'd be an organist and drummer. But his idea was to make it way more... Spectacular, sophisticated and glamorous than this. So he purpose-built a theatre, didn't he, in Batley? 
fantastically, I think. He did it, but on an old sewerage farm. Now that, because, I mean, Yorkshire people are always telling you that where there's muck, there's brass. <laughs> Literally, he built Brackley varieties on an old sewerage farm. And there really was brass. Oh, there was a lot of it for a while. In 1966, he decides to build this club. He gets the bachelors. Now, the bachelors may not mean anything to you now, but back then they were all over the TV. You know, they had loads of hit singles, My Diane and things like this. Three uh, Irish light tenors. I think some two of them may have been brothers. The bachelors come to open it. The bachelors are taking a pink stretch limo to the site and they plant the first stone saying, here, there's the first set of Batley Varieties Club. Designed and built by James and Betty Corrigan, as I say, on, Batley Ro- on Bradford Road uh, in Batley. It took three months to build. Okay. They worked through the night under floodlights. Really? He had ambition as well, didn't he? Because didn't oh, yeah. it hold nearly 3,000 people? Nearly 2,000 people. Oh, Just shy right, of 2,000 2, people right, in its okay. capacity, which a lot of the Labour clubs I grew up in were all about 200 people. Yeah, this, that's this a lot, especially 2, in a town people. that size yeah, as well. Absolutely. So it opens on 27th of March, 1967, the opening act, The Bachelors. Week after they have Valdunican, also quite a big deal wow. at the time. But slowly but surely it gets this momentum. In fact, not slowly, quite quickly it gets this momentum. And it becomes really talked about. There is a fantastic 1980s documentary on it on YouTube in which you can see all of these kind of legends of British light entertainment talking firstly about coming to Batley. Um, Cliff Richard says... It was kind of uh, in no man's land, which doesn't quite mean, I think, what Cliff means there, I think. I think he means that like in the middle of nowhere, you know. Yeah. Mike Yarwood says, I think might be kind of vaguely northern himself, says, oh, it's all a bit grim and northern. Scylla Black says, oh, I thought that was somewhere north of Liverpool, which I guess technically it, it is. is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was right. But basically what they're all saying, though they all say is you would not think that this town and this locale and this squat building, because if you look at it from the outside, Paul Daniels is on the same... You looked at it from the outside and thought, like, it's like an abattoir or a factory or something. It is kind of oddly situated as well, because you'd think, you know, it's only on the outskirts of a big town like Leeds or Bradford. Why not have it in the centre of one of those places? But he wanted to do it in Batley, clearly, you know, the place where he was from. That's right. He wanted to make it a theatre as well. It wasn't just going to be a working man's club. It was going to be like a theatre. So the, the inside, apparently, was incredible. You went in and it dipped down. So you went down into the ground. It went down into the earth and was huge. Five tiered levels of seating, of which the most expensive was the front row. But it is very in the style of a club you'd see in Vegas. Oh, yeah, the little round tables, yeah. the lamps, all that kind of thing, waitresses, two long bars across either side, apparently. And quite quickly, he starts to get big ideas, doesn't he, about who he wants to come. And it really, he really did get the most extraordinary people. Most famously, he gets Louis Armstrong to come for two weeks. Yeah. At a point in 68... Is it quite quickly established itself. Louis Armstrong's one of the biggest entertainers in the world at this point. What a wonderful world. He's number one all over the world. I think he would have just have sung some songs in the Bond movie, You Only Live Twice. And he comes. He gets him to come. Where he's met at Leeds Bradford Airport by a nine-year-old lad called Enrico playing Basin Street Blues on the trumpet. So sweet. Louis Armstrong emerges from the plane and goes, <laughs> right, who's playing my tune? Sees this little kid who, just by the by, then is invited to every night of his two-week residency in a special box and stays in touch with Louis Armstrong for the rest of his life. Aww. That kid, Enrico, is now is a top yeah, bat- jazz, jazz player, trumpeter yeah. here, jazz player. I've seen this from great interview footage. Danny LaRue sitting in the grounds of his country mansion with a can of Heineken prominently displayed in front of him, which isn't very <laughs> Danny LaRue, saying how 
for years they were trying to get him to come to Batley for four years and he was saying I can't because of the production number the production involved in my it involves as he puts it they know there's 15 boys and girls in my gang and there's all the lighting people and all the technicians he said it just costs too much and they work out that he's going to have to sell something like 500,000 scampi and chips and like a million <laughs> pints of beer to afford the Danny LaRue run, but they do it. I know. Well, but that's they do it, it because actually it wasn't that expensive to go there, was it? 25p is... on a good night, except yeah. for Shirley Bassey, who was the goddess of Batley, yeah. yeah. This is the weird thing about it. How, because he was offering big sums of money to these artists. That's how he got them there, that's isn't how he it? Got them. You know, up to sort of 27,000 and beyond, and, which. They balked balked at 45 grand for Dean Martin, who becomes Corrigan's personal favourite singer. And Dean, we'll choose our words carefully here, Dean's manager (laughs) says Dean Martin doesn't get out of bed in the night for for less than 45 grand. Even the Corrigans thought that was too much. But yeah, they were regularly paying the high 20s. And this was coming from membership because he had 65,000 members, yeah. And queues around the block. I think. What? And these were all working class people, hard working people from Batley, oh, weren't they? You know, it's not like there's a huge kind of middle class on the outskirts of. But those I guess towns, it was a but... time, socioeconomically, it was a time when the working class of the north of England was actually doing quite well. We're talking the mid late 1960s. You were talking a time of really nearly full employment, that those mills would be booming, everyone yeah. would have a good wage, and they wanted. And I think there's something quite sweet about this, I think. They wanted, this guy thought that working class people deserved the top entertainment that you'd get in Vegas. You know, yeah. your Sammy Davis Jr. And why not? Your Louis and why not? And for a while, that's what happens. And the extraordinary, I've seen interview footage with Gene Pitney, Neil Sadaka, Cilla Black, Tom Jones, all these, Cliff Richard, all these people who went and played there. And what they all say is how what fun they had there because they said although when you arrived sometimes apparently what James Corrigan would do he did this to Louis Armstrong is he would drive you to like a disused you know factory down the road and go well this is it <laughs> and then you'd go oh and then when you saw the actual place you wouldn't you know you wouldn't think it was as bad you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah. but they all would stay at the Corrigans the Corrigans had this cottage that well they called it a cottage it looks like a manor house to me somewhere on the outskirts of Batley right and all of the turns would play Actually there. go and stay with Would them. stay there. And cook. So you get these weird things with Vera Lynn, obviously. James <laughs> Corrigan saying, Vera Lynn was a marvellous cook. I always enjoyed Vera's cooking. Earth I wonder what she made them. I Shepherd's she pie. Made them, I bet she did them she a good made Shepherd's them pie. Chicken. She made them Oh, simple dishes. Chicken with herbs and garlic, not oh, a lot right, of cream. Okay. Showing that Vera Lynn was That's ahead of the... That's upmarket for well, the time, Well, I'm ahead of the curve because she was getting away from all your French Hulk cuisine. She was right, mean okay. more nouvelle cuisine back mm. in the 60s. Well done, Vera. He didn't like Eartha Kitt's cooking. Right. Because she said the meat was nearly raw. But there's this. Did gra- Gracie Fields stay? Because she. Gracie they Fields. brought her back, didn't they? Gracie and Fields, he tempted, kind of he tempted out of retirement. Yep. He got her back at semi retirement on the Isle of Capri. And uh, she said to Cilla Black, apparently, well, what, what, what money should I ask? And she said, whatever Louis Armstrong asked, whatever Satchmo asked. So that's what she did, and she got it. So it was making so much money. This is making the extraordinary a thing, fortune. So all these kind of great stories. They had a pool there, so you'd go around to the Corrigan's house one night, and there'd be Neil Sedaka and Jean Pitney in the pool in Batley, you know. Vera Lynn rustling up a nice chicken Provencal. Eartha Kitt going, what's wrong with my raw meat here, you know? <laughs> Gracie Fields doing a spag ball or a spag nap. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Jean Pitney says that the kitchen... Lulu says that the kitchen was bigger than most people's houses. And you would open... And Jean Pitney says it was like they had their own supermarket. You would open the doors and there'd be cases and cases of tinned goods just waiting for Vera Lynn to knock something up. <laughs> tinned spaghetti. There's a funny interview with James um, and they're talking about the sums of money that he was offering these stars to come. Because... 
he wanted them to come for days on end as well, didn't he? Residencies, that was Yeah, right, they did yeah. residencies like in Vegas. So Shirley Bassey came for like the whole of Christmas, then didn't Christmas she? Christmas New Year. She did New Year's Eve though. Yeah. yeah. And the interviewer asked him, who did he pay the most? And he says his ex-wife. Oh, really? In the end. Well, yeah. yes. In a, in a moment, <laughs> we'll come to this. Yeah. The Everly Brothers played, and and Alvin Stardust recalls because he was Malcolm and Wise. Malcolm and Wise were there because Malcolm had um, he had an almost fatal heart attack while he was in residence. While he was in Batley, yeah. Alvin Stardust says that when he was there playing on the same bill as the Everly Brothers, the Everly Brothers had gone country. With the late 1960s, I think the Everly Brothers went through a phase where they thought they were like the Birds or, or Grand Parsons or something. So they were playing these very slow country numbers, and it, and people were chatting and eating scampi all the way through. And this James Corrigan apparently great. went to them backstage and said, "You're not gonna, you know, you can't do that, lads. You got to do the big numbers, otherwise they're gonna get." So he says to the Everly Brothers, "Basically, change your musical direction here." So they go on the next night and they do "Bye Bye Love," "Wake Up Little Susie," and they storm it. They absolutely storm it. Gene Pitney talks about going to the hotel in Wakefield. If you didn't stay with the Corrigans, which most people did, there was a hotel in Wakefield that some people stayed at, and there was the Queen's Hotel Leeds where Satchmo stayed. Gene Pinney talks about leaving on the first morning for rehearsal and the doorman of the Queen's Hotel lead saying, well, we'll know bad tomorrow whether you're any good. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you're still here. And he said, I don't know what you mean. And he was introduced to the Northern Working Men's Club tradition of paying you up, okay. which is what happened is if, if a singer isn't going down well by the first half of the set, they will be paid up. The, the, the concert secretary will say, here's your money, lad, go. Right, okay. And so the doorman would almost basically say, Gene Pitney, one of the biggest... Stars in sixties pop <laughs> might get paid up at Battle Variety. In fact, they might say, oh, "No, we don't want you. We'll have the magician back on." <laughs> Which it just sounds like I would have given anything to have been there. Can you imagine New Year's Eve in Batley seeing Shirley Bassey Shirley singing Bassett. Goldfinger? I know. Eat, drinking pint of miles. I mean, some scampi and chips. It sounds absolutely brilliant. It couldn't last, and it didn't. They had all these amazing gigs, and all of the performers since said they loved it. They might have thought that it was a, the, the culture of the north of England then was a bit strange. There's this brilliant footage of Eartha Kitt going around the market in Batley, it tasting like whelks and things. Black pudding. And there's a lovely bit where she's on a hillside over Batley, looking out, and she says, I think it's beautiful. She's look at these hills and these little houses on the hills. I think it's beautiful. It's a it really is sweet thing. Up there, it is, yeah. It? yeah. Well, uh, there was an interview with one of the bar staff that, that's online as well, and um, she says, Oh, they were all so, they were all so, so polite, all these big stars. The bigger they were, the, polite, the, the more polite yeah. they were, you know. Louis Armstrong said, Batley is like a natural aspirin. <laughs> Which I can only assume means it was good for you. It perked you up. Yeah, you know, yeah, you were yeah. feeling no pain. And Gene Pitney says you go in, you'd look at it from the outside and go, oh my God. But you get in the room and the 2,000 people in there, and he said it was electric. The atmosphere was absolutely electric. So do you think its reputation kind of grew abroad and that was partly what brought people there? Oh, or I do you think, think they so. wanted to actually foster an audience in the Engelbert, in the north of England? Engelbert Humperdinck, you know. who's also many, there many a time, <laughs> Engelbert Humperdinck, who loved it as well, said word got around because performers will talk and performers will say you should do badly you'll get really well paired and really well looked after so people did it's good it was a victim in a way of its kind of own success because other people in sheffield and leeds started, started to, to say thing. we want to do the same we could do this as well so they start to dilute the audience and your leeds people say well we'll go to leeds fiesta instead of going to Batley. and the corrigans always volatile marriage because I think they'd admit that themselves. The Corrigans, who lived this fantastic high life in Batley, two Rolls Royces, swimming pool, <laughs> wow. a kitchen bigger than your house. You know, every Lulu said every gadget in the world they had as soon as it was invented. They split up, and I think with their split up, that's that's the, it's the beginning of the end, and also the fact because it was that, so costly. 
I think, and also, and you needed the two of them as the organisational brains behind it. There were several, we should say there were other people involved. It wasn't just the Corrigans. There were several other people involved as well to, uh, uh, who, who were instrumental in doing this. But things start to go sort of uh, a, little, a little off the boil, you know what I mean? Competition. And I guess also when we get to about 70, 1970, the working man's club scene is starting to die as well. The club scene starting to die down. So the Corrigans split up. The club, there's a very sad phase where the club becomes derelict. And you can see footage online of the dressing rooms and the kitchens in ruins and stuff like that. Then it's briefly, uh, it becomes the Frontier Club and is briefly reignited. And Charlie Williams, who played the original Batley, uh, does the opening night of that and says, oh, you know, I hope it's the new dawn for Batley, sort Aww. of thing. Uh, Charlie Williams is an extraordinary figure in himself. He was one of the few black faces you saw regularly on British TV. He was a star of the comedians. He had hosted the Golden Shot. But that was in later life after he had been both a teenage pit man down the pit and a rugby league professional turned star comedian. It's a good booking. For you. He is a good booking. <laughs> Opening night. But it didn't work. It, it never happened. It became a gym eventually, and now it's, I think it's derelict now. It, I think it's a gym now, isn't it? Oh, is it? I think so. I think so. I Did would you? love to, you know, do some weights on the spot where yeah, Vera Shirley Lynn Bassey sang. Yeah, had a, I don't know, you know Diamante it, Stiletto. Or oh, yeah. It's just, but it's just incredible stuff. It captures a kind of micro, microcosm about so many, a moment about so many things, doesn't it? About working class life in... In England. Yeah. Aspirational. Aspiration. About, you know, yeah, it's yeah. almost like you can... I'm surprised it's not been a film because it really has got that you can make your dreams come true thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. A connection to culture as well, you know, a connection with kind of the working people in a town. Sure. To culture and international culture as well. Cliff Richard says that he didn't quite... Cliff Richard, he didn't quite enjoy the clinking of the forks during his set. But that's why, <laughs> it, it, after a while, they started to use plastic cutlery. Oh, really? So that you couldn't hear... <laughs> So the one, the tremulous bit where Cliff was singing Miss Unites, you know, <laughs> and he's Miss Unites. So you couldn't hear, oh, this is a nice bit of scampy day, isn't it? I feel I'm allowed to make fun of other people being Northern. Okay, <laughs> in case anyone thinks that's a bit <laughs> offensive. Um, but it, yeah, it just it's a magical story. It is a film waiting to be made, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of sad to think now that it would be hard to recreate that, isn't it, in a place like that? Yeah. Because Rochdale was, uh, you know, I'm from Rochdale and the main theatre, which became a cinema in town, the Rolling Stones played there. Oh, for sure, yeah. Which is just extraordinary to think now that a band that big would come and play in a small theatre in a small town. But they did, didn't they? It's before the circuit, isn't it? Yeah, It's before you went and played the GMEX on the Manchester Arena or whatever. It's before all those. Yeah, and you had to go and go out to your audience in the provinces, didn't you? Variety theatres and little clubs were where you played. They were. Well, there you go, Batley. I don't think it'll ever rise again, but it was a brief flowering of a brilliant bit of British entertainment history. We like to divide up the show with a notable exception, a one-off, a unique event. You know, the Beatles only made one instrumental, as we mentioned the other week, flying. You could send us some of your own, but uh, this week, Elizabeth? Yeah, so Elvis only ever came to the UK once. It was in 1960. He was on his way home from army service in Germany and he stopped at Presswick Airport in Ayrshire he did. Uh, and because he wasn't with his normal entourage and management he was actually able to speak to fans uh, he told one of them this is quite a country I must see more of it which he never did which he never did but the never story the story of Elvis at Presswick is so good and interesting and that I think we should tell him for maybe on a future yeah. notable but if you want to send us one of your own notable exceptions maybe we'll research and investigate yeah. it a bit more a one-off a unique event yeah at notable pod that's where we are on Twitter 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right, okay. Uh, so the story I've got for you, Stuart, is um, about Liverpool Cathedral, Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral, well. which is the Catholic cathedral. Um, and it's opening in 1967, for which they commissioned Pierre Henri, who's kind of, well, he's known actually as the godfather of techno. We'll come on to that in, in a moment. Okay. They commissioned him a kind of pioneering Parisian experimental composer, and he wrote the first ever electronic mass. Wow. So I just wanted to put this in some kind of context, you know, just as to how much of a big event this was. Okay. Um, the Metropolitan Cathedral in Liverpool, also known as Paddy's Wigwam. Paddy's Wigwam, it's affectionately yeah. known as, yeah. Um, if you go on their websites, they call themselves, well, they call the building, a dramatic icon of faith, architecture and human endeavour, an awe-inspiring landmark on the Liverpool skyline, which it is, it's isn't brilliant. it? It's brilliant. It's incredible. If you know it's... Liverpool, or if you don't know Liverpool, you'll you'll know it. They've got a cathedral to spur, of course, as the scaffold. They do, scaffold yeah, yeah. So they've got the brilliant red brick, yeah, uh, Anglican Cathedral, Ang- Anglican Cathedral then yeah. designed yeah. by Giles Gilbert Scott, and then then looking at it down Hope Street, yeah. is this brutalist masterpiece, the the Church of Christ, the King, uh, the Cathedral of Christ the King. I think it's proper it name, is, isn't it? Yeah, on Mount Pleasant. Great. Um, and the cathedral is the mother church of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Liverpool and the seat of the Archbishop of Liverpool, who is the leader of the whole northern province of the Catholic Church. That's right. So this, the opening of a cathedral there, is a big deal for the Catholic Church yeah. in the UK, but also around the world. You know. The launch of this place was a pretty big event, I think, in religious history. I may have alluded to once before that I was at the opening as an altar boy, but I don't think I was. I was at something very soon after. Soon after it was opened, they had a thing where all the Catholic converts, all the people in later life, had converted to Catholicism, and they had a huge mass celebration of that. And I was an altar boy on the cathedral, on the, on the, but, but I wasn't at the actual opening a few years earlier, which I think was in 67? It was, 67, right. yeah. Um, so just a little bit of a, a history about the building, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. A it's a beautiful building. Because um, it was commissioned... Well, the, the original idea was that it would respond to the Anglican Cathedral, and uh, which is a neo-Gothic structure, yeah. as we said. So architecturally, it would this, be this kind of dialogue between the two buildings, which, which is, is actually a really nice idea, it's nice isn't idea. it? And it's true, and it's not... Non-sectarian, which is good. And um, it works. If you go to Liverpool and walk down Hope Street, it's scripting on a summer's evening. You just feel like the two are facing each other and talking yeah, to each other. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it took a few... They went through a few different architects before they got to the structure that they have now. So it's a man called Sir Edwin Lutyens who um, was originally given the job and 
his plan for the building is incredible. This would have been the second largest church in the world, the largest dome in the world, wow. 168 feet in diameter, which is just to compare this, the dome at St. Peter's Basilica is only 137 feet wide. So he was a man with like huge ambition for this building. The cost, though, would have been £27 million. And this is in the kind of 30s and 40s. So the equi- that's the equivalent of £1.35 billion. Good grief. I know, which is it's inc- it's staggering, isn't it? Yes, that it is, is staggering. And like, you know, it was hardly kind of a time of great prosperity was it so well, i don't know 30s, what no, no. certainly so what and this is all exactly and this is all paid for by working catholics in liverpool what were you thinking you did do the cenotaph so if you do want to see some of his handiwork you can see that see it yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. and you, and actually the crypts they started work on his design okay. and the crypts that he designed is still there okay. and beneath the, ch- the uh, church that is built on on mount pleasant so yeah, the church basically decided this was too expensive. We can't spend working Catholics from Liverpool's money in this way. Uh, it was redirected. It was put into education for Catholic children. And instead, they first commissioned a couple of other people to come up with designs. And the person who got the job was Sir Frederick Gibbard. Okay. Work began in 1962. It was completed in 1967. So it was quite speedy and economical. Actually, not that structurally sound when it was finished. Okay. They've had to do a little bit of work since uh, on a number of occasions just to kind of secure the roof and some of the tiling, I think, uh, as well. When you say it was but, economical, pretty much anything would have been after well, Eddie Lutyens' billion pound plus thing. Anything would have represented <laughs> the saving, wouldn't it? Basilica. That's right, yeah. But what I love about this is that from the start, it was intended that this would be a really kind of open building. So yeah. it's very democratic in its design. Um, the altar is in the middle. There's no kind of hierarchical structure physically you know it's all very flat isn't it and in the round is, so the congregation is, yeah. are kind of situated around the altar it's a fabulous um, building if you haven't been give it a yeah, visit yeah absolutely and it's very light as well yeah, isn't yeah. it so yeah it was finished pentecost may and the building is now ready to open it's this big deal for the catholic church the person and this is what i love about 1960s liverpool and i think it says a lot about the place and the time the guy tasked with overseeing the opening celebrations is a guy called Bill Harp, whose background is in contemporary dance and community arts. Right. <laughs> and um, he was a co-founder, actually, of the UK's first ever community arts project, which, which says a lot, doesn't it? A proper hippie. Basically. I'm tempted to think now it'd be a PR guy, wouldn't it? Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? It would be someone like from a London PR consultancy. Three different mobile phones. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Instead, this guy's just got one grey ponytail. Uh, he's still around. I've I've met him. Wow. Yeah. I just think that says a lot about the church's openness, I think. And Pope John, who was Pope in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. he was the person who said that it was time to open the doors and let fresh air into the church. Right. So they were very much running with this ethos. And yeah, Bill Harp, yeah. he actually, I went to the 2017, the anniversary of the yeah, launch yeah, yeah. of the cathedral. They did play the mass, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he said that it just felt like anything was possible at that time in Liverpool. Yeah, I bet. Still not loads of cash sloshing around, though, but still, they no, were No, but ambitious. what vibe there must have been, as I say, you've had the Mersey Poets, you've had a string yeah. of new talent coming out of the, the Beatles, you've had, you know, it, would have been, it must have been... Yeah. A, 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 a willingness to do quite a lot with not much, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so Bill planned for two masses, and they would both be the first ever to be performed with an accompanying kind of contemporary dance a piece that was uh, mm-hmm. choreographed especially for the evening. So already pretty far out yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, the first was by uh, Francesco Cavelli and the second they were going to commission and this was going to be the world's first ever electronic mass. 
as I said, by this Parisian composer, this pioneer of electronic music, now known as the godfather of techno, Pierre Henri. Pierre Henri, yeah. So we both know Pierre well, we know Henri. If, you know, if you know about music concrete, he was an early exponent of music. Well, I don't know about early, but he was an yeah, exponent was. of music concrete. He was one of the first. The idea of using phone sound yep. and blocks of sound. Uh, to make these fairly challenging compositions for the time as opposed to conventional melodies on piano and such. Yeah, absolutely. So um, he's a classically trained composer. He trained at the um, Paris Conservatoire with Mm -hmm. Nadia Boulanger and Messiaen, who we're going to feature in a a, a later episode. episode. And just thinking about the theremin as well that we've also discussed, radio technology... Well, the advancement of radio technology during both wars, actually, you know, it happened at such a rate that between and after the wars, these kind of experimental minds coming out of the conservatoires were just playing around with this technology and doing all kinds of incredible things and creating electronic sounds for the first time. So a lot of them worked out of radio studios that were obviously invested in quite a lot during the war as well, state-funded radio studios and um, broadcast centres. And they were working with tape, but they were taping sounds, but not only were, I guess there was quite a lot of philosophy, wasn't there, behind this practice? Because not only were they taping sounds, and Pierre-Henri believed that when we hear a sound that we recognise, it places us emotionally in a time. But then what they also wanted to do was kind of um, detach the sound from its original meaning Mm. or resonance. So tape manipulation was a big part of what they did. And I guess that's what it became, isn't it? It was quite kind of familiar and also disorientating. It's yeah. very postmodern. And the Beatles, who we've yeah. spoken about a lot as well, they were very inspired by this practice. And these collages of kind of taped sounds became a thing of the 60s, didn't they? They and certainly did. McCartney, McCartney initially was the one of the Beatles who was very into it, although latterly I think he was quite irritated yeah. when Lennon got Lennon, one of these. Yeah, exactly. Lennon McCartney got revolution. was the first, though. Oh, McCartney was definitely ahead of the curve, but, but Lennon got revolution number nine on first, and so everyone thinks you know yeah. Lennon was the far out one. But in yeah, fact, yeah. Matt could have been, was into Stockhausen and all yeah, these people. And Delia and Delia Darbyshire. Darbyshire, yeah, and it was actually the Doctor Who soundtrack, the, the theme tune for Doctor Who, composed by Ron Grainer, but with the effects created by Delia Darbyshire. Yeah, sure. That Bill Harp used to convince the church council that they should use Pierre Henri. Oh, is that what you did? Yeah, because he said, this is music concrete, and they loved it. They all knew Doctor Who, and they were like, brilliant, let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Without looking into too much about Pierre Henri's work, just another thing, there's quite a lot of Eastern kind of mysticism connected to music concrete as well, and this idea that, you know, we hear a sound like this, but actually if you slow that down or speed it up, it becomes something completely different. Mm. And so there's worlds within worlds of sound, oh, almost right. like, almost that through sound, you're entering another dimension. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Far <laughs> out, man. It is pretty far out. Yeah. But it's very 60s. Yes, yes. It's very Bill Harp. Yeah, yeah. And actually very Pierre Henri, because he looks to kind of Gregorian chanting and um, uh, quite Far Eastern musical sounds and harmonies and textures as well when he's writing the Liverpool Mass. As it became, Is that what it as, became it, as it became Mess de Liverpool. Mess, yeah, 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 Mess de yeah. Liverpool, yeah. So he gets a very sort of throaty male voice that he used to record the traditional parts of the Mass. The text of yeah, the Mass. Yeah, the text. Yeah. The Kyrie, Gloria, Credo, Sanctus, Agnus Dei, and the Communion. Yeah. And then, because another part of music concrete, and particularly Pierre Henri's practice, he was inspired by playing in orchestras as a student, and that depending on where you were standing, uh, you know, yeah, you got next to the orchestra. You got a different balance of sound, different or different world of sound. sound yeah. Exactly. So the idea was that you would hear these voices kind of 
coming from different parts of the church. Different speakers in the church. Different speakers yeah. in the church, exactly. And I saw it, so I should say, in 1967, Pierre Henry hadn't finished it, yeah, sadly. Yeah, finished it, yeah, by the time it opened, yeah. <laughs> After all this. Yeah. But uh, they did perform part of it with the contemporary dance piece that was planned to go with it. So Liverpool had a bit of a window into music concrete and contemporary dance at the launch of its Catholic cathedral, which I just think is extraordinary. But it, yeah, we should say they didn't finish it. In, he didn't finish it in time for the 67th. So they got the Hollies to do Jennifer Eccles instead. No, they didn't. <laughs> um, no, so they, they got someone else in, didn't they, to do it. But then it was performed for yeah, this anniversary that you were at. Absolutely. So 50 years later, isn't it? In 2017, yeah. um, Jarvis Cocker was part of Jarvis the Cocker, drive to yeah. get this performed yeah. because he'd become aware of Pierre Henry in Paris uh, when he was living there, of course. In fact, he went to Pierre Henry's house, which Pierre Henry's house was this kind of incredible place where he'd wired up everything for sound and to be recorded. So there were even kind of speakers and microphones in his bathroom. Right. The whole The whole place was sort of this kind of monument to sound exploration and a kind of working studio. So he turned like he turned yeah, his life. He turned his life, his life and house into music into a studio. And Jarvis was a sort of comper, wasn't he? The host of the evening. he was. Pierre Henri couldn't be there, no, could he? he? Very sadly, he was almost ninety when it happened, yeah. and he died very shortly after, did, just before yeah. his ninetieth birthday. But he sent his technician and someone who works very closely with him, Pierre Ballas. Oh yeah. And they set it up. They had forty speakers. It was placed around the church, and they performed it in 2017 and it was just it was incredible like the sound it's hard I can't do it because I don't have a male voice but it's it's the very deep chanting words repeated there's just something very kind of haunting incantatory absolutely Yeah. Yeah. yeah It's not an easy listen. I bet it's not. Um, even in 67, this would have seemed far out. It still seems... still seems far out It now, still right? seems far out, Well, yeah. there were, it, it, that's interesting. It reflects the architecture of the church in some ways. It does. The cathedral, because there are still people who look at it and go, well, I don't think that looks very nice for cathedral because it's got this brutalist look. Yeah. So in some ways, it was the perfect piece of music yeah. to have for that. And Concrete, fi- brutalism, and the music sounds. And 50 yeah. years later, it finally gets heard there. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how the two places we've talked about, we talked about two places in the north of England, captured at a moment these two buildings, very different, you know, Batley Varieties Club and Liverpool Catholic Cathedral, yeah. but that captured a moment of kind of optimism almost, isn't Absol- it? It's aspir- aspirational. Aspiration, yeah. artistic, in their own different ways. It is yeah, artistic yeah. aspiration being seen in both situations, isn't it? But either electronic music or Shirley Bassey and Louis Armstrong. Definitely yeah. a sense that anything is possible. Notable, the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 